Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J., where my guest is Kent Alexander, who is an attorney, the former United States attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. And why he's here today, actually, is because he is an author of a book um, that you've probably heard about that is part of the basis of a film that you may have seen, and that is the book The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, The Man Caught in the Middle, which is part one of the sources for the film in theaters now, Richard Jewell. So, this is a special get because it's a combination of law and um, popular culture and an influence on what people are thinking about a lot of different issues that get raised in the book. And, and I'll go ahead and say this now. Well, Kent, welcome. Thanks very much, BJ. So, Kent, I, I've read the book and I've seen the movie. And I will go ahead and tell my listeners that this really is an instance where you should read the book. Um, and just not the film. Um, there's a lot of depth, there's a lot of background, and it opens up a lot of questions about how investigations and in the legal system works and fairness in the justice system, So, which is one of my passions here. So I'm appreciative of you putting out something like this. So what led you to decide to write this book? Because what's unique is you, in essence, are a character in this book because you were the United States attorney during the Olympic park bombing here at the 1996 Olympics. Well, uh, over 20 years ago, when I wrote Richard Jewell's non-target letter, which was played as a clearance letter, which in effect it was, I decided not long after that that this would just make a really good story and book someday. And then uh, career and life got in the way a bit, and then five and a half years ago, I got together with... Kevin Salwin, who's my co-author, and Kevin's a former Wall Street Journal reporter, editor, and he was as fascinated in the story as I was. And so what made it, made me decide to tell it was I knew it was a pretty cool story. I f knew I only knew half of it at best. It turns out I knew a lot less than half. Uh, we spent five years in the book and decided to tell it as a narrative nonfiction book. So basically, it's written like a novel, with Richard Jewell being a character, the reporter who broke the story for the AJC being a character and the FBI agent. The AJC for the, outside of Georgia yes. listeners, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the the, yeah. no, the the local paper of Atlanta. Right. And the third character is an FBI agent, Federal Bureau of Investigation agent, who effectively made the case that wasn't. So we intertwine their two lives and then midway throw in the real Olympic bomber uh, as a fourth character. So... When this, when it is really unusual because when I'm reading it too, you talk about yourself in the third person. It's not I, it's just Ken Alexander, U.S. attorney. So let's go back to the 96 Olympics itself. And that was a point, anybody who lived in Atlanta, like for me, you know where you were 
whether you were there at the Olympics or you heard about it, I know for me, I actually had gone to opening ceremonies and then evacuated the city because I thought the traffic was terrible and where I lived, I wasn't going to be able to get to work, went on vacation. Um, but I heard on CNN Live and my boyfriend was down at, at, the, at the park. And so I was mm. panicking trying to reach him and he wasn't answering his phone. And like many people who had that same experience, you know, you, you, there was terror there and there was terror for anybody who had a loved one downtown. What, where were you when this happened? How, what was your first notification adding to it that you were the United States attorney here? Well, I was at home. It was one twenty in the morning. So I was uh, you know, peacefully sleeping and I got a call from a friend, Jim Green, who also is watching CNN. And he said, man, you got to turn on the television, take a look at this. So before I heard from the FBI or anybody at the Justice Department, I got a call from a buddy and uh, I was just uh, shocked. We trained for all sorts of things that might happen, including bombs, but I just didn't think it was going to happen. So uh, that's where I was. I was home. I took a shower. I headed to the FBI and then to the park right after that. And uh, the rest of the Olympics for me was basically reporting to work at the FBI. So ha tell the reader, our listeners um, who haven't read your book yet, um, how it was developed that Richard Jewell was someone to focus on. Yeah. Well, for the benefit of the listeners, for starters, when this bomb went off on day nine of the Olympics, the Olympics last 17 days, it was early in the morning at Centennial Park. Two million visitors were in Atlanta. That night, 50,000 people were in the park. It was the largest uh, pipe bomb of its kind ever in ATF or FBI history. Richard Jewell discovered the bomb, actually discovered a, a backpack, a military pack under a bench before it went off, helped clear people away. The bomb went off. Uh, one woman, Alice Hawthorne, was killed instantly. A Turkish journalist died of a heart attack. Over 100 people were injured, most with shrapnel in them. So it would have been much worse without Richard Jewell. So to, for starters, he was... He was a hero. I saw him that morning. I shook his hand in the park at dawn. And uh, then within a, a day, a day or two, uh, the president of Piedmont College, a place where he had worked in North Georgia, called up and said, you know, this guy lost his job here. He lost his job at the sheriff's office up here in North Georgia. Not saying he did it, but you might want to take a look at him because he's a little, little over the top sometimes, a little overzealous. Then other things started coming in, other calls, and there had been a, um, there had also been a uh, cop who had discovered a bomb, what was supposed, supposedly a bomb, in Los Angeles, 1984 at the Olympics. It was a police officer with LAPD. He found a bomb in the bottom of a bus with Turkish athletes in it, not not in the bomb, but in the bus, and he. Uh, he ran off with a bomb across the tarmac at the airport, saved the day. He was heralded as a hero by the mayor. And then it turns out he had planted the device to become a hero himself. So it's not that Richard Jewell was the bomber, but a lot of things started falling into place, including things he himself had said. So, so that hell explains how quickly they were mm -hmm. examining him because of that prior experience. Exactly. And so uh, the bombing was early Saturday morning. By Tuesday morning, when he was interviewing on the Today Show with Katie Couric and she was essentially saying, you know, people are calling you a hero, Richard, and he was doing, as was his want, uh, so in aw shucks, I was just doing my job. 
but it was a great moment for him. But uh, unbeknownst to him, at that same moment, the FBI had him under 24-hour surveillance. So as he left the set, which was right next to the park, Centennial Park, which was also reopening that morning, he was being tailed by the FBI. And how long did the investigation go on? Because obviously he's a focus immediately. How long was that time period before it was determined that he was not the bomber? There was an intensive investigation of him for two weeks or so. And then things started to sort out a little differently than they first appeared, uh, including uh, the fact that there was a profile done by the same people who did Silence of the Lambs, behavioral science group in, up in uh, Quantico that suggested he did it. And all of that started sorting out a little differently after a couple of weeks or so where a lot of people or some people at the FBI were saying, maybe he didn't do it. But the entire investigation of him really didn't sort out for three months as uh, his attorneys and Richard and his mother were fond of saying it was 88, 88 days of hell from the time he was identified until the time he was cleared. So what made it public? Because, you know, normally in investigations, and I, you know I do criminal defense mm-hmm. work. Um, I was a state prosecutor, but have done some federal defense now and obviously regular state work. But, you know, most of my clients don't necessarily know that they're under investigation here. Initially, you're saying, you know, he wasn't, and then there was a shift. How long did it take before Richard Jewell realized that things were shifting for him? It took from that Tuesday morning when he interviewed with Katie Couric until that afternoon when the FBI called him in for an interview, and he realized he wasn't just being interviewed as a witness, but he was the suspect, hence the title of the book. And just more from the tone of how it went, um, his gut feeling, or did he have an attorney with him at the beginning? No attorney at the beginning because he was the hero. Why get an attorney if you're the hero? But what ended up happening is, uh, in answer to your question of how his name became public, uh, there was a leak. There was a law enforcement leak. And at the time, I didn't know who leaked it. Nobody at the FBI knew who leaked it. There was an investigation. No one ever found out who leaked it. Uh, Kevin, my co-author, and I did find out who leaked it, and we write about that in the book. But that law enforcement person met with a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Kathy Scruggs and gave enough details to make it very clear that Richard Jewell was, in fact, the, the folks of the investigation. He was the prime suspect, and the AJC reported it. And when that happened, it completely discombobulated the FBI's plan for a quiet investigation going and talking with with Richard Jewell, not once but twice was the plan. First, it was going to be a soft interview. Second, if it turns out it sounded like he might have done it, a harder interview. But, and when you say for, for our listeners, mm-hmm. soft interview versus hard interview in the eyes of um, the FBI, what's the approach and what's the difference in that approach of that sure. kind of interview? Well, the first interview is outlined by the guys in Quantico at the Behavioral Science Unit was going to be an approach where they – basically said, you're a fellow brother in arms. You're, we're law enforcement. You're in law enforcement. We'd like to talk to you a little bit about what happened, and you can help us figure out who did it. That would be great. So more of a, a chummy kind of interview. If, based on that interview, he said things that were incriminating and it looked like he still did it, there'd be a second interview, which is more of a hard-hitting, you know, we have a lot of evidence here. 
it's better to talk now. Tell us what happened. We're not, we understand life can overwhelm you sometimes, but you need to tell us the truth and make it clear that he is, in fact, the suspect. The behavioral science unit in this case, you know, was very, it sound, from reading the book, is very involved in what helped push the narrative and, and really focus on him. What did you learn from looking at Richard's case of maybe where some faults are on relying on that type of approach of looking at, you know, a behavioral science as opposed to the actual facts of what you see on the ground and the evidence that's there? Well, to start, behavioral science is a great field and is a great for a tool in the investigation, but it's not evidence. So uh, even though everybody knew that at the time, and at the time, the behavioral science unit or behavioral assistance unit, sometimes called, uh, it had great success with a lot of cases, but certainly wasn't foolproof. And in this case, was just wrong. So one thing I learned was to only use it as a tool and recognize it clearly is not evidence and, in fact, not just uh, not to take anything at face value but look more at the facts independent of what some sub subjective psychological type profile might say but just look at the facts and does it make sense that somebody could have done this crime. There was plenty there for Richard Jewell to look at, but I think without the behavioral science uh, analysis, it would not have gone quite so far. And I guess it's compounded by the publicity that was attending to it and the leak that was there saying that there was this kind of work happening that, that kind of encourages a media that goes, wants, obviously, it's an international story that, and everybody wants to have something that someone else doesn't have to push the envelope of what they're putting out there. In, in 1996, more so than ever before, because at the Olympics with uh, the media, you had 15,000 journalists in town. You had NBC covering everything wall to wall. Just a few days before the Olympics, MSNBC went on the air for the first time. In 1996, Fox went on the air for the first time. The New York Times went online. Chicago Tribune went online. All of the New York Times went, Wall Street Journal went online. All of these, all of everything was speeding up. So if, when something happened at the 1996 Olympics, it was social media before social media. So when Richard Jewell's name got out, he went from obscurity to infamy faster than anyone I had ever seen in a criminal investigation, anyone. And we didn't quite know what was happening and what was really happening is we were seeing what would happen 15, 20 years later when social media really came on full bore. And it was just a sight to behold. And uh, in fact, the, you know, the media by, through really confirmation bias, you get a story and then you, somebody else confirms it and then they echo it and it becomes louder and louder, went from he is the suspect to he is the village Rambo, or he's the fat failed sheriff's deputy, or he's the unidoofus, all of which were said publicly by media outlets. So it just got really out of control really fast. The other component in reading the book, and then this is the criminal defense lawyer in me a little bit, mm -hmm. is in terms of, you know, concern about how the FBI handled this particular case in the sense of um, a, it became public, um, and locking in so soon 
that it was him. I, I mean, I, and obviously, as you mentioned, there's some reasonable reasons, you know, that he was there. Um, there have been some calls, but that had different work happened sooner, he he would may not have been on that position. Um, and it was really when it was in your office, I think, that there were some questioning that started to happen where the lawyers are looking at it, asking questions, or you asking questions. Is that fair to say that? Well, it's fair to say people are asking questions all along, but early on, there was a, a filter that everybody was looking through. A lot of people were looking through just saying, it looks like it's him. And not from the criminal defense perspective, but from the prosecution perspective, in any investigation, at the end of the day, you want to find out who committed the crime. In this investigation, you had the two million people in Atlanta. You had events going on all over the state. You had a bomber on the loose, and the the priority was trying to find out who the bomber was and stop that person. And when everything locked in on Richard Jewell and this profile matched up with investigation the investigation that was going on, there was a a reasonable thought at the start that this could be the guy. So I take no issue with the initial focus on Richard Jewell, but it became the only focus for too long or the main, the primary focus when you really did need to step back. And to your point earlier, BJ, don't rely on a, a profile that just confirms everything. Really look at the facts. And I think when that happened, both at the FBI and in my former office, we started questioning whether Richard Jewell was the guy. I and mean, maybe you know, some of us questioned it earlier than others, and some at the FBI, till their dying day, still thought Richard Jewell was complicit. But the fact is, not only wasn't complicit, he was uh, he was a hero. Your book mentions and talks about three, there's a term 302s, which mm-hmm. is the report that's done by an FBI agent and, and and sent. And one of the things about a 302 is, you know, it is a report of what someone says as opposed to a recording or um, whether a video or an audio recording of what someone says. Um, and it doesn't seem in general that there's a lot of fondness for recording those interviews, but rather just taking notes from the agents. Do you feel like if it had been recorded interviews of a lot of these people as opposed to an um, an officer who may already have really be convinced that he had done it, um, writing the 302s in such a way that it was leaving out some information? Do you feel like that was part of the problem? It's it's hard to say without seeing the recordings, but there was enough in the 302s, which are written reports of interviews, as you said, that on a uh, a completely uh, objective view, really did support the idea that this guy may not have done it. So even without a recording, some of it was there. In some ways, it was more how people were reading the reports than how the reports were written. Some, I'm sure, were written with a bias, uh, but I think a lot of them were just straight up. And it was really looking at not just at dozens, but ultimately hundreds of 302s, that the weight of the evidence, just from the reports as written, clearly showed, at least to me and some some other folks, a number of us, that it just didn't look like this was the guy who could bomb bomb anything or would have been the bomber. And in fact, it, the reports themselves started making him look more like a hero. So when you start, to, you're, you're realizing this and you're starting to deal with the various officers who may feel otherwise, um, 
Can you share a little bit about how those conversations go when you're making the decision as U.S. attorney um, to say, you know, no, we have to stop this? It was an interesting set of conversations or series of conversations. The investigation reached a point where there were a number of people in the FBI who really did question whether Richard Jewell was the bomber. Some at the same time absolutely thought he was the bomber. Most of the questions that remained, open-ended questions, only Richard Jewell could answer. And there was a standoff between Richard Jewell and his defense team who did a tremendous job you know, defending him. That was you know, Watson Bryant and Jack, Jack Martin. Jack Martin, who I want to point out that it, is not in yeah, the movie. Right. I was sitting there because well, only I, I know Jack. We, we Everybody practices law in Atlanta. And I thought, well, I saw Watson Bryant. I was like, good, but like, where's Jack? I mean, because yeah. he was well, an integral part well, of it Watson as well. Watson in the movie is a compilation of all the attorneys. And he had just this really good team that included Jack and it included, of course, Lynn Wood, who was with Richard Jewell through the end, 16 years he spent with him. And Wayne Grant. So we did, but they, and Lynn Wood and Wayne Grant were his civil attorneys. Exactly. Um, and, who, sort of, and sort of his PR attorneys, too. Uh, they, were, they were very uh, active in the press. But what ended up happening is you had them representing Richard Jewell, understandably not wanting Richard Jewell to talk at all with the FBI on one hand. On the other hand, you had the FBI saying, unless we can talk to him, we, he's still a suspect. We need, we need to be able to talk with him. So the conversation with the FBI largely had to do with what do we want to do about a lie detector test. Uh, you know, the FBI wanted to have one done themselves. The Richard Jewell team had one done themselves. And the FBI wasn't going to take anything that their team did to the bank and vice versa. So that was a stalemate conversation with the FBI. And then it became a question of, well, what if you could talk with Richard Jewell? If you could talk with him, would you be willing to have us, as in me, say that he's not a target of the investigation if you don't have evidence, substantial evidence showing he's going to be indicted. So it became a back and forth with the Jewel team and the FBI in figuring out how that might come about. And it was really to the great credit of Jack Martin, who had a huge amount of criminal defense experience, where over a handshake, essentially, he said, here's what we'll do, and I'll agree to it. If I bring him in, if we bring, the whole team brings him in, but Jack was sat in on the interview. If the FBI has their shot to ask him anything they want, along with a GBI agent who turned out to be there as well, and an assistant U.S. attorney, in three weeks, if you can, if you don't have anything, I'm expecting a letter. And one thing that people don't realize is the criminal defense practice, the criminal law generally, is way more civil than the civil practice. So when people sue each other over money, it gets really nasty. In criminal cases, you're dealing with the same people, as you know, over and over again. So there's much more based on trust and handshakes. And because of Jack's, Jack's experience and his reputation, as well as the great work the other attorneys did, we arranged that. And sure enough, at the end of three weeks, there really wasn't enough to proceed on Richard Jewell. So that's when we um, had a letter, gave a letter, to Jack, gave a letter to the Jewell defense team. And that is a letter indicating that he was not no longer under suspicion, essentially. Essentially, it really, it's called a non-target non letter. It's very, letter. it's uh, you know, there's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo but, but involved give us in that. A, but, but our listeners like to learn some legal jumbo. Okay. So let's let's <clears throat> talk about what it, that is and, and and what it looks like. All right. So in a criminal investigation, a federal criminal investigation, you can be a witness, which you want to be because that means you're not involved in. As, 
under suspicion. You can be a subject of the investigation, which means you're somewhere involved in the the mm-hmm. the action, and you could be a defendant, but the, nobody's going after you, or a target, where the, which means there's substantial evidence that you committed the crime, and you're likely to be indicted. What Richard Jewell received was, it's called a non-target letter. It's not a, not a standard letter to send, but it basically said there's not substantial evidence. What I knew, and what uh, Jack Martin knew, and I think probably Lynn Wood knew too, and some others, is that would be played eff- effectively as a clearance letter, even though it's just saying you're not a target, there's not substantial evidence. So I gave that letter to Jack Martin. Uh, after I issued a statement along with it, but then I did no interviews because I knew if there were interviews, people would ask the same question you did, BJ. Well, what does it mean with target? Does that, so does that mean he may be still a subject? And the hope was by both the defense team and me, that the media would play this as a clearance letter because that's effectively what I, the intention was, and that's what they did. And in fact, in the letter, we asked if he would cooperate with the investigation. So he was cleared in the public's eye, and that satisfied folks at the FBI who still thought he was guilty because we hadn't said, oh, he's not guilty. And it satisfied the defense team to some extent because they had some more than you usually get and in the public, I think the message was exactly the message there should have been, which is the guy's not not a not a suspect in this. In fact, he is a hero, and you couldn't say you can't say I'm sorry. Basically, uh, when you don't when you've got people in the FBI who still think somebody's done a crime, but I think the best we could do is get a letter out that would be perceived by the public and rightfully so as a clearance of Richard Jewell. So the timing of your book and, and, and the film is interesting as the topic of the FBI still is mm-hmm. is looming on a lot of different issues. And and, and we're not going to get into all of those and ask your opinions on those. But it, it, it seems that, you know, the reputation of the FBI has these ebbs and flows and concerns about how they go about their job and how do they determine and lock in and how is that different than in the state system, um, where it, it does feel in, in some ways that there's more leeway with the FBI on the federal level of how things are working to, to, to create the same scenario potentially again for someone else. Do you feel like there have been policies or anything that's changed within the Bureau or in terms of how U.S. attorneys look at these things from what happened to Richard Jewell to say, okay, lesson learned, we're not going to venture that far. There are some lessons learned and, and changes made. Uh, back in the day, as I mentioned, the behavioral science reports were probably at an all-time high in terms of how heavily they were relied on in investigations. And I think the Richard Jewell case in part helped balance that out a little bit so it became a tool again for investigation. So you people know Mindhunter and all of that. It's, it can be very important but it's not evidence. So I think that that was helpful. Uh, after this case, the term you know, person of interest started becoming more in vogue instead of suspect or you know, subject to the investigation so that somebody's reputation wasn't hurt quite as much. And importantly, after this case, uh, as a result of this case and others, when agents have something in their background that's unsavory, uh, instead of going to an office like a uh, unsuspecting, uh, you know, parish. You've got a priest who's got had problems somewhere else and ends up you know, having a clean slate. 
the file follows them. And so people really know what an agent's background is. And without giving up too much in the book, that would have been a big help in this case. You, We've talked a lot about the criminal one, a little bit more about the civil. You mentioned Lynn Wood and Wayne Grant, who had the um, civil lawsuits, um, which ultimately led to settlements and, and, and money to, to, to Richard. Um, how do you feel or how to after looking at it closely, how important was that component as well for Richard and his mother? And then in broader terms, in letting the public have more of an eye about the things we're talking about, about how the FBI and law enforcement works in these situations. It was hugely important. His his attorneys, uh, you know, Lynn and Wayne in particular, and Watson, of course, kicked in as well. By that time, Jack Martin, who did the criminal piece, was out did a phenomenal job on his part. And there was the financial piece, which was helpful to them, but I think there was the reputational piece and there was the justice piece in the public psyche that was very important. And one thing that the movie doesn't get into, because the movie's, which I think is great, by the way, I really enjoyed the movie, but it stops effectively after he's cleared and then you catch up on Richard Jewell a little bit and the fact that this guy, Eric Rudolph, got involved. But what we do in the book is, we continue to tell the story, and there is the story with you know, what happened with CNN and NBC and the New York Post and Piedmont College and the litigation with them. And we go light on litigation because usually readers don't really like a lot of heavy, heavy legal stuff. But the way that Kathy Scruggs, the reporter's life, intertwined with Richard Jules at a distance, but still intertwined almost cosmically, and the way that beyond the litigation that followed, the real bombers case and that investigation, Eric Rudolph's investigation, played into the, both the litigation, Kathy Scruggs' coverage, Richard Jewell's life. Makes for a pretty interesting tale, I think, which is why we wanted to tell the tell the full story. And it, it's quite a story, and I can definitely say you need to pick this up. You need to take a read. Um, you can watch the movie, but I was so glad I had read the book before I saw the film. I mean, you can do it the other way around, I, I, I realize, but there was um, something for me that just said, you know, these are the things that the public does need to know, that um, it's fine to trust prosecutors or, or law enforcement. We rely on them for a lot of things, but at the same time, there needs to be accountability. And when a story gets told where things happen and went wrong as they did in this case, and where um, Richard became a victim in all of this. Um, having it laid out, especially in the book, I think can give the listener a lot of things to think about when they listen to the news. And we are, as you mentioned now, the shift to social media. I mean, I can't, can you imagine Twitter if this had been It would have been on, time, fi- on fire, <laughs> just Twitter. on fire. Um, and probably even worse um, in terms of the reputation because then anybody could have just hopped on, you know, the, like Piedmont College, the, who you mentioned, you know, they called law enforcement. You know, they may, there, there would have been people like that who have just gotten on Twitter and just start talking or on Facebook or something with no filter of law enforcement questioning. And then Lord knows what stories they would have told that may or may not have been true and out in the public realm. And then that would have made a reporter feel comfortable because, well, it's somebody else has already put it out there. I'm just repeating what right. You they confirm wrote on what their, somebody else says, and that's Facebook when the page confirmation and, bias comes it, in. It goes from there. 
So with that, we have been enjoying tea as we do on every episode of of my podcast. And I chose a tea appropriate for, um, I think, this case and maybe what Richard, who's no longer with us, would want for everyone. And this is um, a tea made with red clover. And for centuries, it's technically an anti-inflammatory, but spiritually it's considered for protection. And I think um, the telling of a story gives all of us some protection um, from from just accepting everything that we hear first and requiring law enforcement and the courts to do their job in such a way that we have fair um, situations so that they are not placed um, in the public eye in the way in which he was and the, and the anguish that he and his mother experienced in his life. And, and hopefully that's uh, very fitting. And hopefully the people, uh, when they read the book, will also find the, uh, the joy and humor that was interlaced in the middle. It's uh, an entertaining tale, but it's a tale with a lot, of, uh, a lot of pathos, too, and a lot of lessons, as you say. Exactly. Thank you, Kent. Thanks, PJ. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ music theme written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.